Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 95. Those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it, right? Or maybe the problem is that we should be repeating some history that we're not. Either way, it's time to get a historical perspective on AI on the show again. And so my guest today is George Dyson, who is, well, many things. He is a master kayak builder in Bellingham, Washington State near me, but also a keynote speaker about the history of computing and the author of Darwin Among the Machines, The Evolution of Global Intelligence, and Turing's Cathedral, The Origins of the Digital Universe. His early adventures, contrasted with those of his father, physicist Freeman Dyson, were the subject of Kenneth Brower's classic 1978 dual biography, The Starship and the Canoe. Catch his TED Talks and also his keynote at the Open Source Conference in 2015 when you can see pictures of some of the things we're about to talk about. There's a link to that video in the transcript. I was fortunate enough to be in the audience in Portland for that one. Here we go with the interview. George Dyson, welcome to Artificial Intelligence and You. Yes, happy to be here. We're only 45 miles apart. <laughs> 45 miles and an international border apart. It's so far these days, but let's hope that it gets better. Just to give our listeners an idea of who you are, one of the stories that's often told about you is that you spent three years living in a treehouse. Do tell us about that one. Uh, yes, that was in my sort of wandering youth. So I was, I was 19. And now when you tell people you spent three years in a tree, they think you had some political agenda trying to save the rainforest or something. But I was happily helping to cut down the rainforest. I mean, I hung around logging camps and stuff, but needed a place to live near Vancouver. And at that time, the entire coastline around Vancouver still, you know, was inhabited by a lot of squatters. It wasn't that strange, but I just ended up 95 feet up in this big Douglas fir from which you can see downtown Vancouver. It was only like six miles from downtown. That's a lot of exercise to get to the grocery store. Uh, yeah, I went to the store in Dollarton across the inlet and it was wonderful. I mean, now, of course, everything I, all these crazy ideas I had at that time that the trees represented sort of a network to slow intelligence are now scientifically respected. So, Right. The connection in the biome is fascinating. Maybe we'll talk about that. Now, you have made a name for yourself in the sphere of this show primarily in the history of computing and perhaps the paradox for so many people in this business if we think about the typical silicon valley resident is that computer science is maybe the ultimate forward-facing discipline it attracts followers who can code as soon as they can walk or type and they might argue that they're too busy creating the future to look back at the past what are they missing uh, they're missing a lot because, I mean, first of all, people have been thinking deeply. Some of our deepest thinkers have been thinking about artificial intelligence for three or 400 years and thinking about it in a profoundly serious way. 
And to disregard that is just foolish. I mean, that we, you see, particularly in the sort of recent rebirth of neural networks, I mean, you see people absolutely repeating work that was done before, just not searching the literature, sort of before the internet, things were cataloged differently. The search terms aren't there, but the, the work was done. And yeah, it's quite amazing how ideas from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries are mm-hmm. flourishing now, but being reinvented so it's just my particular, you don't have to look back. I mean, you can reinvent things, but that's what I do is sort of look back. And what I found fascinating when reading your books, the Turing's Cathedral and Darwin Among the Machines was how much they were, as you say, forward-looking in those days when they barely had two valves to rub together and they still wanted to do simulations of intelligent life Turing was thinking about this before even had the hardware to run it on. And so in a sense, perhaps, I wonder if our imagination is not as powerful as theirs. What do you have a sense of their ability to project themselves into the future? Well, they had a completely clear horizon. They had no sort of existing computing industry to tell them how it should be done. So they thought very openly and independently about it. I mean, the strange thing is that if you brought either of the two recognized fathers of it all, Alan Turing and John von Neumann, if you brought them back today, they would be absolutely shocked that we are still doing everything exactly the way it was done in the 1950s, that we haven't really advanced in a sort of profound architectural way. The machines they designed to solve particular problems were seen as a solution to immediate problems, not the way people would have to keep doing it for the next almost a century. Do you mean that they saw the von Neumann architecture as a a stepping stone, that they had designs beyond that? Right. It was sort of an emergency. It's like first aid. I mean, you come in before the doctors show up and just do what you can do. And this was wartime. They were facing deep problems in cryptography and nuclear weapons design. This was a solution. But if you look at von Neumann, I mean, he only took out one patent. And his patent is for a method of non-von Neumann computing. Hmm. And IBM bought it and sort of buried it. But it's very much the way we're going now. If you look at that von Neumann patent, it's a way of sort of self-modifying non-algorithmic architecture for solving problems, which is what we're sort of drifting back to. Right. I mean, if you look at the hardware and software that it takes to run artificial intelligence neural networks these days, if you do that on a von Neumann architecture, you've got all these layers of abstraction that introduce all this slowdown just to do what the human brain is doing naturally. And so I think this is where people are looking at, and I don't know much about them, neuromorphic architectures these days. And is that the sort of thing von Neumann and the others had in mind that they were going to do when they got around to it? Absolutely. I mean, the sort of tragedy or the strange twist of fate is that we ended up with a microprocessor where you can just print these von Neumann, quote, machines cheaper than dirt, but they were printed from a template, so it became very hard to change. But if, Mm. yeah, I'm sure if von Neumann was with us today, he would look at it and say, yeah, I mean, get rid of it. He was very clear that the brain did not work in a logical way. It wasn't based on this sort of abstract logic. And so now we have tools and the neuromorphic people are working on this, except they still sort of keep simulating it. But there are a small number of companies and parts of Intel that are actually building real non-algorithmic chips. And that's a very exciting thing. It's going to change everything. It's going to be driven by drones and cell phones are the two things that 
are driving that and self-driving cars if Elon Musk would get out of the way because he's not doing that, which just surprises me. Why are you trying to build a self-driving car that is a purely digital system? I mean, there's the real use case for either going completely analog or at least hybrid analog digital. What would analog architectures look like now? I mean, to me, from my computer science classes decades ago, analog was something that was in the past that was in museums and just thought about things like knobs and dials on cathode ray tubes and before that differential analyzers, things with rods and levers, and we didn't have time to look at those. But now you're mentioning analog in the context of today. What is the bridge? Well, it's a cycle. It's sort of like what happened in the 1940s. We had all this analog hardware lying around after the war, and a few oddballs figured out how to use this analog equipment to build digital computers. And the difference between analog and digital is a strictly technical difference between computing with discrete functions, ones and zeros, or computing with continuous functions. In fact, that's why what we call in America a vacuum tube in England was called a valve. It it could operate a continuous sort of flow of electrons. And now we're seeing the same cycle, I think, sort of repeat itself, where we now have all this digital equipment and the oddballs are figuring out that, you know, you can build analog computers out of this digital stuff. And that's what the big internet companies are effectively doing in a sort of unconscious way. They're starting to compute with continuous functions rather than discrete functions. YouTube doesn't care what the bits mean. It just cares about the amplitude of the flow of bits. And computing that way, which of course von Neumann was very explicit in his book about why the computer and the brain are different. That's how nature does all its control systems are analog control systems because it's far more robust to operate on the pulse frequency or amplitude of a signal rather than the exact meaning of each bit where you get one bit wrong and then you're, mm. you've got a blue screen. And that's where Shannon comes in with error correction so that yes. we're able to transmit and store information reliably. But did that in a way kind of seal the fate of analog computing at that point because it was focused on how to make it either on or off? It did, but I don't see why we have to accept that as permanent. I mean, you know, nature did exactly the same thing. Nature uses digital computing for genetics because of the error correction. It's very good for both correcting errors and, of course, for also introducing significant errors, which is a good thing if you want to have evolution. But in nature, the Control systems are analog and the information storage is digital. And I think we're going to end up going the same way if I'll be dead. But I mean, come back in 50 years and I bet you, you know, if we do have real self-driving cars, they'll have analog control systems, not digital. And I may be wrong. I've been wrong about lots of things. Uh, we, all, we all have been wrong, especially the last two years have been very humbling. Yes. You describe how the early history of the development of these computers hinged very much upon the atomic weapons program, which is interesting how much that may have or how much part that did play in funding the development. What actually was the role of the atomic weapons program in our computer development? It was, In a sense, it was almost inevitable because you, at Los Alamos, we put the most brilliant scientists and mathematicians we had not only in the United States, but of course, from it was a large British contingent, a Canadian contingent, and then all the people fleeing Eastern Europe because of the disaster there. So, you know, all these 
extremely clever, smart people were together with these problems that required a whole lot of numerical hydrodynamics to solve. And Richard Feynman was there. And so it was just almost inevitable they would start build computers because that they needed them. They had human computers and they were given every single piece of equipment that IBM made at the time. You know, so they had free access to all the resources. And they think that something's not recognized with it. At that time, IBM maintained strict control over their equipment. You could not modify IBM equipment. Like they, in fact, you, most companies just simply rented. It was like the old telephone system. You could not. But Los Alamos was given a special exemption that they could mess around and tinker with their IBM machines. And a lot of computing just came out of that from people like Richard Feynman figuring out what can we do with these sort of mm-hmm. rather non-intelligent office machines and make them do much more powerful things. Was a lot of that classified? Did it only emerge after some decades? It wasn't strictly. I mean, the good thing we did in America was we didn't keep the computing classified. In Britain, they did. And it was, a, I think, a huge mistake. You kind of didn't want to admit what these guys had done and women had done during the war. So the stuff that came out of Los Alamos was pretty freely adopted on the computing side. And it changed. Mm. Of course, those people then went out into the world. And, and that's, I think, I would say what gave the United States the lead in computing that they had. We mentioned human computers there. Were those at that time mostly women? Yes. And they all had very interesting stories. You know, I got to talk to a few of them and it was just such a rich time and sort of irresistible. Was it a time of greater empowerment of women? Did they take a step back after that? Yes. Of course, the war opened up all these spaces because the males were moving through the university system much faster into wartime positions. Positions were open you know, sort of discrimination was lifted. And and it was a very, like when my father came to the Institute in Princeton just after the war, four of the physicists were women, which I think has never happened since. You know, not till recently have there been four women Mm. physicists there. During the war, everybody was working on this stuff to their ability, not to whether people thought it was the proper thing to do. Right. And the same in England. Most of the calculators at Bletchley Park were women, Hut 8 and so forth. And then... Somehow that, once it no longer became necessary for the war effort, that patriarchy reasserted itself, I guess. Yes. One of the HUD-8 calculators I talked to is in Victoria, Olive Bailey. Hmm. And I came to Victoria and gave a talk, and she came up after the lecture. Sort of the last person in line, just boundless energy, bounded up on stage and said, we all loved Alan so much, we were so sad to see him leave Hut 8 when he left Hut 8, which was her mm. group. He was so wrongly represented in that film, made mm-hmm. to seem sort of antisocial and clumsy. Everybody loved him. Well, they have to have a certain narrative to succeed in that sort of thing. But how then would you give us the flavor, the essence of the man there? And maybe the way we can contrast that with the other giants of the time. Of Alan Turing? Mm-hmm. Well, he had a tremendous sense of humor. And we forget that that's, we're seeing that in Ukraine right now. I mean, that was the British secret weapon. It wasn't the code breaking or the atomic weapons or whatever. What helped Britain win the war was the British sense of humor. No matter what happened, they kept a sense of this dark humor about things. And that gave them the strength to withstand sort of the impossible odds they were in before America joined the war. And the film about Turing kind of missed that. They didn't capture that sense of humor. Mm. I think that's what Putin is up against now. I mean, he's fighting against a comedian. He can't. (laughs) That's a good point. You know, it's so tempting to play 
alternate history games and try and imagine what it would have been like if Turing had lived longer. Every time I learn more about what he did, I'm just stunned at how prescient it was. What can you say about his relationships with people on this side of the Atlantic who he was working with? He did come to Princeton, right? Yes, he did his thesis there. Now at least there's books about it and stuff, but it also was he already was bored with sort of deterministic computing. So his thesis was about non-deterministic computing. He called them oracle machines that, mm. that would work logically for a certain number of steps and then do something completely crazy and illogical. And he knew that that was the path to real AI. The path to real AI was not in infallible, perfect machines. Yeah, he was definitely onto something. And yeah, if he could be in the modern environment where A, his sexuality wasn't a problem yeah. in getting clearance to work on interesting stuff. And yeah, he was, we were right at the beginning of both the genetic revolution and the digital revolution. He was deeply interested in both those things and mm. he just would have jumped right into it. Such a loss. I always wondered why he didn't move to America to escape the persecution in the UK. Well, I think the American Edgar Hoover was, oh. would have been after him in no time. I think that's, I think he would have had a hard time here. It's too bad. What he said in his private letters, I think there maybe could be some truth to that, that he disliked how the Americans had showers and not bathtubs. <laughs> you know, being British, he liked to take a good hot bath in a big tub and he gets to New Jersey and they're all taking showers. I mean, it's little things like that. I mean, he had other reasons for going back to England, but, mm. but we didn't treat him. I'm speaking as an American. I mean, we didn't treat him that well. And you were talking about biological systems there, and you described Nils Baricelli and his digital universe at five kilobytes and creating some sort of, was it a cellular automaton? Yes, it was before the modern sort of invention of cellular automata, but it was that idea. And yeah, you think about that, that's the that's less memory than an icon takes up on your desktop. I mean, it's an incredibly small amount of memory, but that's all. That was all the memory there was. So he used it and then just kept, I mean, he had this crazy life where he just wandered around to wherever there was a new computer being built would try and mm. scavenge time on it to run these universes that he was building. What was he trying to do? Build self-evolving digital life forms? Yes, he wanted to see how evolution, I mean, he by trade, he was actually a viral geneticist. He was interested in phage genetics, which are these sort of between virus and bacteria. Very interesting organisms. Wow. I mean, it's stunning to think of that being done in 5K. Yes. So he wondered how did the genetic system in nature evolve and sort of said, let's do it in a computer sort of laboratory experiment and see what happens. And of course, it was amazing how all this phenomena as evolution started. And he'd learned very quickly you had a diversity problem if you had a closed universe. So he would run three universes where the organisms could move back and forth between different that's, I mean, that's this whole metaverse thing we're being sold now. I mean, that's the fatal flaw. If any company tries to maintain it as a closed system, by definition, it'll never come to life. Did that work get picked up? I mean, did it get eventually turned into, what do we call it, genetic algorithms, or did it wither on the vine? No, that's the amazing thing. It just completely died out. And, you know, I showed up and found these boxes I was looking for were there relics of the von Neumann's project. And there was a box in the basement covered in dust and dirt and grease. And, and it contained all the punch cards for one of his universes. But the scholars who came later never, well, one or two, but the only person I ever met was Alvy Ray Smith, who, who founded Pixar, but had studied cellular automata as a student. And he knew about Baricelli's 
work. And when we met each other, it was like, oh, you know that. But almost, it was just too far ahead of its time. Mm. And he was a crazy oddball guy. That's an interesting connection there with Alvy Ray Smith, because I met him once long ago when I was interviewing at Lucasfilm, and they had just come up with the Star Trek II animation of terraforming the planet, which looks a lot like biological systems. It's fractal-based. You have to let it evolve itself. You can't control that whole animation. That This is fascinating. One of the things I'm wondering about, to go back to Turing and the Turing machine, and that was this stroke of genius where he envisaged this device as a thought experiment to prove that anything which mapped onto that was a machine that could compute any computable function. And he envisaged it as this thing that ran a linear tape beneath a head and would make a mark, read a mark, or erase a mark, and then move the tape. And it had a memory store of a program. And I've wondered whether people took him too literally. I mean, it wasn't long after that we got magnetic tapes and we got paper tapes, and it was a, a very digital model. But it's not the only way that you could instantiate the church Turing thesis in hardware. I wonder whether that was something that inadvertently shaped the way our hardware evolved? Yes, I mean, it shaped it. Ever since, it's just, it really is extraordinary how one, now it's sort of unpopular, this sort of great person theory of history that one person mm. steps in and changes everything. But in Turing's case, it really, I mean, he had this crazy idea, but proved it in a mathematically rigorous way. I mean, in a paper that was just at the time seen as just mathematical logic, mm. not with any practical use. And then in, over the next 50 years, it just absolutely changes the way the, mm. the world works. And, and people have argued forever, like, oh, what did von Neumann didn't read Turing's work or other people were doing it. It would have happened anyway. And that may be true, but I mean, it's why the book is called right. Turing's Cathedral, because it's just this enormous what he built. cathedral grew out of this one very, yeah. very, very, very clever statement. And the machine is just a stroke of genius. I mean, he could have left it as symbolic logic for mathematicians, but he said, well, you could imagine this machine and then proved how it would be equivalent to that logic. Yeah. You were talking about going through those boxes of records from the early days, and I've seen your presentation about the notes they took then, and it's really amusing how humanizing they are because of their frustration, and they wrote their frustrations down on paper, and they're exactly the sort of things that we experience now, although we don't usually have the time to write them down, but just the same kind of cursing at the computer for doing what you told it to do and not what you wanted it to do. Yes, and those notebooks document, to me, a really fundamental and important transition. I mean, history, again, has transitions from the age of the dinosaurs to the age of mammals. But it's rare that you find the actual documentation of when that transition happened. And in those notebooks, which started when they first sort of get the machine running at all in 1950, and then they get it running well in like 1953 and 1954. And the notebooks, of course, document complaints. If everything's going well, nobody usually makes a note. But if something goes wrong, then there's a note in the notebooks. And at first, almost all the problems are hardware problems. Vacuum tubes not working right, the just classic hardware problems. And then they get the hardware running well, and it eventually shifts to where the hardware is running smoothly and all the, which is the world we live in today, all the problems are software, our code problems. But in the middle, there's this transition where when they have a problem, they're trying to figure out, is it the hardware or is it the code? And they argue a lot about that. And we now live in a world where you know almost all our problems are, I mean, what we call a hardware problem, it's actually a software problem. It's that you don't have the right driver for your microphone or something. We very, very, very rarely in the modern world do you actually have a 
computing hardware problem. It's mm-hmm. just forgotten. Reminds me of a quote by Morris Wilkes at uh, Cambridge yes. where he was, I think, walking down the stairs and he realized for the first time that most of the rest of his life was going to be spent debugging programs he'd written. Yeah, that's the world we live in now. <laughs> Thinking about these, again, I just want to use the word giants of computing because they're so iconic and you're describing them in an environment where they're all working together. And I don't know enough about them to know how egotistical they were, but some of them certainly sounded that way from the descriptions and that might go along with the territory. Were there personality clashes? Yes. I mean, there were certainly personality clashes between groups, the big one being that the big American wartime machine, the ENIAC or ENIAC, was really masterminded by Eckert and Machui, who were really the builders of that machine. And then von Neumann stepped in and sort of, whether he took the credit or was given the credit, he transformed that machine into something else. But there was a bitter conflict between those two sides that still survives. There's people who are sort of on the von Neumann team or on the eckert Mockley team, and they, they will argue forever about, about who wronged who. I found some smoking guns. I mean, von Neumann really was pretty unethical and actually unscrupulous in how he, I mean, he was free to go build his own computer, but he didn't have to sort of undermine their work. And he did. But within the team, it was sort of like being on a ship or an airplane or something. You had to work together. I mean, if you have a bomber crew or something, they may not like each other on the ground, but when they're in the air. So those big machines at that time really were a team effort. It took engineers and coders and them to cooperate to keep the thing running. So I think there was that sense of cooperation. How had that landscape shifted by the 60s? Because the space program is often cited as the impulse for the development of the microchip and soaked up a lot of the available computing power. Yes. And the, I mean, the microchip changed everything because suddenly you could have a perfectly working computer for you know almost no cost. And then the interesting thing became, of course, writing the codes for it and then connecting those computers in interesting ways. So there we get the sort of meta level of innovation where we start having networks. I mean, how do you get yeah. computers to communicate. But I think I mixed up the history some. I think the integrated circuit didn't come until near the end of the space program in the 60s. I mean, they certainly they were using core memory for the Apollo mission at that time. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, there's the space, there's the manned space program, and then there is the unmanned surveillance space program, like the Corona project and stuff, which really the Silicon Valley, we know the sort of Fairchild came out of that satellite reconnaissance world, which is again another example how secret government projects will lead to these mm. founding of industries. And actually, that I've got to mention, the intersection of computers, space program, secret government projects, and your work is Project Orion. And you've written about that, which was, well, tell us, what was Project Orion? Yeah, it was a grand dream that never even had the chance to fail. So this was a pre-NASA, we forget, NASA didn't exist until 1958, Sputnik went up in 1957. So there was an interim period where the American government wanted to do anything. We're looking at all possible options to do something spectacular in space. And one of the options was a nuclear explosion propelled space vehicle, which was originally the idea of Stan Ulam, who's now in a sort of independent film about him, which is pretty good. He was Polish, came to America on a $300 visa to give a series of lectures and got him out of Poland, all with his younger brother. The rest of the family were killed. And he always looked at everything 
differently. So at Los Alamos, when everyone was saying, oh, this is a terrible thing that's going to destroy everything, he saw that the, the parts of the test tower were 100 feet from the center of the fireball and survived intact. So he thought, you know, how about using bombs to propel missiles instead of using missiles to propel bombs? And that idea was taken up with, with wild enthusiasm by Ted Taylor, who was a friend of my father, and they worked together. So they had a very serious project to build a 4,000-ton Earth surface takeoff spaceship that their planned voyage was to go to Mars in 1965 and then visit the moons of Saturn in 1970 with a crew of about between 50 and 100 people. So it was envisaged that this would take off from the surface of the Earth? Yeah, probably from Nevada or from a barge out in the Pacific. Using nuclear bombs for the ascent? Very small. And And the thing we forget is that in 1958, we were exploding over 100 megatons of fission equivalent mm. in the atmosphere every year just for military tests. It, sort of, it was one of these things that served multiple functions, that it actually would be very useful as tests, and it would, of course, deliver people mm. to Mars and Saturn without adding to the fallout that we were ready. Of course, when we stopped testing bombs in the atmosphere, then it became mm. impossible. I remember a science fiction novel, Footfall, by yes. Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell, where they had people build one of those Actually, it was they built it at Bellingham. In, is it in Bellingham? The Bellingham yeah. yeah. Right, because it used to be a science fiction conference here, and they were here for the conference and kind of took that scene as a, mm-hmm. a big, horrible, big pulp mill here. It was like the kind of place you would do something like that. <laughs> it destroy most of the surrounding area and its takeoff. I just remember that. So that was, in a way, this seems like a larger than life era of conceiving of atomic bomb powered spacecraft, 4,000 ton spacecraft, and so much. In a way, it seems like our vision has narrowed. If you look at the landscape today of what's being done, it seems like there's a bit of a renaissance of innovation. Is there anyone that you look at today and think, yeah, I would put them up on the same level as those guys? It's very hard to say because you usually don't see those people until later. Like Orion was secret at the time. Nobody really knew about it till later. People started putting it in science fiction novels and stuff. You know, I think we live in a sort of sad world where now, I mean, you can't get on an airplane with a Swiss army knife. That time, the risks were seen much, much differently for better or worse. Mm -hmm. So I'm rather disappointed in the current supposed space renaissance is still just chemical rockets. I mean, it's the same thing we did in the 1950s and 1960s. It's not anything fundamentally new. I know. I mean, there are still projects to do laser-launched spacecraft and tethers, but they are just very small prototype, nothing like the scale that we need. Yes. And they've been in that phase for decades. Right. Laser makes sense. Laser or microwave propulsion, where you keep the energy source on the ground. Mm. Uh, don't carry your energy with you. So there are things that could be done, but we're for some strange reason, we're not doing them. Wow, is this a fascinating conversation. I thank you for giving us this tour through history. I feel like I got the privilege of just being transported back to those days for a few minutes with those people who somehow the stars aligned to bring them all together and do that amazing work at one time. How did you fall into being that kind of historian? Sort of by accident. I mean, as you know, I was completely preoccupied and consumed with kayaking, the history of 
kayaks in the North Pacific. That's all I did. That's what I was known for. And I wrote a book about that. And then one day I got asked to write an essay for a magazine in Japan about nature and technology. The assumption being I would write about kayaks as natural technology. For some reason, I don't know why, I was just bored or irritated. Why does everybody want to hear the same thing all the time? I wrote an essay about, this was in very early, like 1990. I wrote an essay about computers taking over the world, sort of like organisms. And the Japanese loved it. And then an American book agent read it. And I mean, literally called me up and said, you know, there's no deep book about the kind of, the internet was just starting to surface in the public imagination. There's no book about the sort of deep history of that. And got me a contract. Like within a week with Addison Wesley, who were the only people at that time publishing non-textbook books about things like artificial intelligence. So that became the book Darwin Among the Machines that was written here. And I'm in the beer cooler of it tavern on the Bellingham one, right next to the, where the pulp mill was. And that book was written in here without the internet. So this was the last book about the internet written without using just books from interlibrary alone. Mm. And somehow that book just, it's luck. It's like baseball. You, you got to have all the right people on the bases. But that book came out just when, you know, 1997, 25 years ago now. Mm. So when the internet suddenly was known among scientists on, but suddenly became sort of known to the public. And that was the right book at the right time. If I could wave a magic wand and put you in charge, King for a day of, take your pick, Google, IBM, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, which one would you find the most appealing to run for that time? And what would you do? What would you tell them? Uh, well, I think it's sort of no question, Google is the most interesting because they, they have a lot of hardware there. And we forget how much actual inter-transpacific cables and real hard stuff Google controls that do all sorts of them. And, and they are, they're doing amazing things with it. So I would choose Google. And I would, when I first had contacts with Google, they were very shy about saying anything about AI. They didn't want to talk. They were afraid people would be scared of it. So they didn't talk about AI. And now I think they have the same fear you know, why doesn't anybody want to talk about analog computing? So if, if I ran Google for a day, I would say, hey, guess what, people? We are an analog computing company. You know, people think we're a digital computing company, but actually we are the planet's largest, most effective analog computer, and we should embrace that and recognize it. And why do we have computer science departments that have an endless list of classes on codes and algorithms and teach no classes on analog control mm -hmm. systems, which is arguably as important, if not more important. Well, what would you recommend people look for to start finding out more about that? Uh, I think read the old literature, I mean, about analog control systems. And I think the probably the most interesting sources now are in biology because it's the same control systems that work in genetic network. And the biologists are sort of, in some ways, still ahead of the computer people. And that's, they're worth listening to. Hmm. You know, we need to understand the nervous system of a fruit fly. And there, there's still mysteries there. Right. I'm reminded of the open worm project. Yes. Nematode worms got 302 neurons. We're trying to figure out how to build a model that does what the worms do. And that's challenging enough. There's a great paper about that called the best of all possible worms. <laughs> Thanks. Well, that's something for our listeners to go look for. That's an arresting title. What would you like people to look for that you've been doing? Your books, we'll put links to those and anything in particular where they should go find out about you? No, I try. I don't have any social media presence or any of that. I just sort of live in my 19th century world. My most recent book, it's, I think it's also my last book. I don't have a not signed on for another book. And I mean, if I think it's absolutely my best book and it's been the least successful. So 
make of that what you will. And that's Turing's Cathedral? No, it's Analogia. Oh. Which is deeply about these analog questions and about the subjugation of the native population in North America, all sorts of, sort Mm. of all my ideas in one package, but with a fundamental theme of how analog computing is coming back. Well, let's look for that then. Thank you very much, George, for coming on AI and You. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That's the end of the interview. George's most recent book is Analogia, The Emergence of Technology Beyond Programmable Control. And it's about why analog computing is destined to regain control. And there's a link to it in the show notes and transcript. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, the United Kingdom's National Health Service has just deployed a new AI tool that can diagnose heart disease in just 20 seconds while a patient is in an MRI scanner. It would normally take a doctor 13 minutes or more to do that after the MRI. And the British Heart Foundation determined that the machine was doing better than three doctors they compared it to. It's currently being used on 140 patients a week at University College London Hospital, the Royal Free Hospital, and St. Bartholomew's. About 120,000 heart MRI scans are performed each year in the UK, and researchers say that this tool will save about 3,000 clinician days per year, letting the specialists catch up on their waiting lists. Next week, my guest will be Alison Gopnik who is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, and she is an expert on how babies learn. She has given a TED Talk and been on The Colbert Report and The Charlie Rose Show. What do babies have to do with AI? Here's the connection. Alison is the subject of a chapter in Martin Ford's book, Architects of Intelligence, The Truth About AI from the People Building It, talking about how kids' brains may hold the secret to building better AI. Amazing perspective and learning opportunities for people wanting to know how to create artificial general intelligence. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.